I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what I'm doing this time round is a Seth MacFarlane film called A Million Ways to Die in the West. Now, I am not entirely sure this is going to get the biggest amount of hits ever, so I'm going to try and sell it to you right away by going, it's a comedy, it's from 2014, and actually... I'm not going to talk a lot about the Wild West. I've already done so fairly extensively in the episode I did about the English, which is actually a story about the Wild West. Also, I did it in the episode about Yellowstone. So I have talked about the Wild West a lot. I am not going to be talking excessively about cowboys this time round. But instead, what I'm going to do, and hopefully this is the hook for you, is it pokes fun at the very concept of nostalgia and the good old days. And I'm going to tell you, that nostalgia at one point in history was even considered a real disease that killed people. So that sounds interesting. I'll get to the history bit a bit later on. But first of all, I would like to talk about Seth MacFarlane, who is a really interesting character. Well, not character, he's a real guy. But here's the thing. He's probably best known as the guy behind Family Guy. Family Guy started in 1999. He not only is the exec producer of it and sort of started off on the first pilot actually animating it. He was given $50,000 to come up with a base concept to give you an idea. You normally get like a million dollars for a pilot episode for something, anything to get $50,000. You're basically doing this in your house and getting very sweaty and fed up. But he managed to show a proof of concept and the first episodes of Family Guy began running in 1999. Indeed, this is a man born in 1973, so at the time of recording in 2023, he's going to be turning 50 this year. Happy birthday, Seth. But he was, at 24, an executive producer, already working on projects. That is amazing. 24, an exec producer. This man is staggeringly talented. He was always interested in animation. That's what he got into. And indeed, he sort of cut his teeth at Hannah and Barbera, the people who brought you things like the Flintstones and also stuff like Captain Caveman. So yeah, anyway, they've done loads of things, Yogi Bear, etc. Anyway, that's certainly not where he finished. And he very much likes his adult humour which is what A Million Ways to Die in the West, which is a live-action movie, for the record, is. So, 99, we get Family Guy, and really, 
Seth MacFarlane for a while could kind of do no wrong. Family Guy got a spin-off of one of the main characters. It became known as The Cleveland Show. He also created something similar but weirder called American Dad, which is also has a real alien in it. But then again, Stewie. And this is the thing about Family Guy. Peter Griffin, Stewie Griffin, the dog, and even Quagmire, all of them are actually voiced by Seth MacFarlane. So he's the, the main voice actor of it. He also you know, came up with the whole idea, although the idea of a sort of slovenly dad in a slightly dysfunctional family, etc. Many people have said that Peter Griffin is basically Homer Simpson. But then again, Homer Simpson already is at the end of a long line of these kind of slobbish slightly violent, dumb dads. And on that point, there is a weird trope. I obviously am sorry to say that there is a long history of patriarchy out there. Boys are best. And therefore, loads of traditional stories and indeed traditional movies, it's the hero, not heroine. It is a man going out and doing something. But there is actually a bit of ageism going on here. Not as bad as for women. Young actresses are quite often picked for their looks, and then when they start ageing, they aren't given the parts they want anymore, and they basically have to play the mother, which is a very minor part in a movie. Obviously, there are wonderful, amazing exceptions, such as Jodie Foster, for example. You know, there are some remarkably talented women who age like fine wine. But when it comes to the guys, and indeed some of the guys get to sort of play action heroes even if they're in their 50s. I'm looking at you, Tom Cruise. But generally, the hero is always young or sort of not necessarily age-specific because once you become a father, while we have this term father figure and, and indeed patriarchy, the reality is, at least for the last 50 years, once you become a dad, you become sort of balding and chubby and incompetent and the butt of the joke, if you like. You know, just look at Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin. But there are so many examples of this. And speaking as a middle-aged, you know, slow, slowly expanding father of two who doesn't have much on the top of his head. And there's not a lot you can do about that. I mean, people talk about body shaming and things like that. Middle-aged spread's a real thing, and there's genuinely nothing I can do about the lack of hair on the top of my head. You know, it's not because I smoke or don't do exercise. It's just, yeah, it's something that my body does. And weirdly, you get hair sprouting out in other areas as well. I love the bit in just a one-off episode, a one-off moment in an episode of Simpsons, where Homer's there singing I'm shaving my shoulders as he is shaving his shoulders and I don't know what the biological reason for losing it on the top of your hair and suddenly having it sprouting out of your nose or shoulders or wherever is like come on mother nature help me out a little bit here so anyway yes let's go all the way back to family guys so there was a time when Seth MacFarlane was just having you know monster animated hit after monster animated hit and then he tried a movie in 2012 he created Ted which is about a foul mouth talking teddy bear that's animated and it was a big old hit and then in 2014 he gets to do another movie which he this time he did the voice of Ted but Ted is animated but then in A Million Ways to Die in the West, he actually gets to play the leading role without any animation between him and the screen. So that's what's going well. But he's had his fair share of failure too. Family Guy has been cancelled twice. But basically because of good DVD sales and campaigns, some of these campaigns being sort of pre-internet, basically Family Guy was allowed back on the screens. And indeed it is now a regular fixture on Fox 
slash Disney. But then again, also, The Simpsons is there as well. So, hey-ho, anyway, you get the idea. So that was cancelled twice, but it's still running strong. But The Cleveland Show was cancelled and never seen again. Although Cleveland came back to the family guy world and then a million ways to dine in the west after the big hit of ted just managed to double its budget to give you an idea generally it is considered that if, if a movie does two and a half times so doubles and then another 50 percent of the original budget by then by the time you pay the cinema and everything else the advertising fees to promote the movie etc you're going to break even and then once you get past two and a half times, once you get to three times, four times, etc., you're making money. And this thing, because it only just uh, just over doubled its budget at the box office, it clearly made money on terms of like streaming rights and DVD sales, etc. I am pretty sure that ultimately Seth managed to get his money back on this particular project, but it wasn't the big hit of Ted. Indeed, he went on in 2015 to do Ted 2, and that wasn't as big a hit either. And also, you know, people went, well, you know, it was funny one time with a sort of foul-mouthed teddy bear, but the second time we, we'd kind of seen and done it all. And if you like, that's one of the criticisms and backlashes to, to Seth because he does more adult humour. Sometimes people say, uh, you know, come on, can we can we go a little bit beyond the fart gags? Do we have to talk about this subject, etc.? It's the usual thing where it's like, I love it when it is skewering that thing that I don't like. But oh my goodness, they're now skewering a thing I believe in? Oh, that they've gone too far. Well, it's like, well, either they're allowed to skewer topics or not. And generally, something like, you know, left-leaning people, which... Seth MacFarlane absolutely is literally a person who's paid up to and given contributions to the Democratic Party. So an obvious thing to do is perhaps deal with like um, fundamentalist Christianity. And he absolutely does that. But he's also he's an equal opportunity offender, much like the guys in South Park. And basically, he said some things which have sort of like stirred up the left in America as well. And I say good, good for you, because what you're looking for is to try and show sometimes strange ideas on both sides of the political parties in America. And if you only skewer one side, it's almost propaganda. But if you're kind of going for anything, I absolutely respect that. Doesn't mean I necessarily laugh at everything. And I can't turn around and necessarily recommend any of what I've just mentioned to you because I don't know what your sense of humour is. Bob Hope once lamented that when it came to the best actor category, that only dramatic roles were ever considered for it. And he says, it's really hard to make people laugh. And indeed, he said, look, we can all agree on what is dramatic, but what's funny? And that's always stuck with me as a line. What's funny? Now, you may turn around and go and watch A Million Ways to Die in the West, and like me, most of the jokes land, and you'll be sitting there chuckling your way all the way through it. But one of the criticisms of it is that Seth can come across as whiny, and I think sometimes he does. The basic setup for A Million Ways to Die in the West is he is a very bad sheep farmer in the Wild West, and almost nobody actually has much of a character in this movie. So look, I'm not going to lean into this too hard. He's got a love interest, but she's been stolen away by Neil Patrick Harris, who plays this wonderfully glorious, arrogant, moustache-wearing owner of a sort of moustachery. And there's this sort of joke about, you know, I'm thinking about growing a moustache to Seth, and he goes, you couldn't afford it. He goes, yes, there's a lot of money in these lacquers and oils and things like that. And, in, and indeed, there is actually a background to the history of the moustache, which I'm not actually going to go into right now. But clearly, everybody's having fun here. Indeed, 
in the movie there are a bunch of surprise cameos which i won't go into at all and you've got liam neeson playing a cowboy with a broad irish accent which is actually a follow-on joke from an episode of family guy basically saying what a bad cowboy liam neeson would make and liam neeson agreed to do the movie only if he was allowed to go even broader with his irish accent but again that would work technically because almost everybody's an immigrant in the 1800s so that's what's going on there if you like the whole point of the film is that the jokes i mean there are a lot of fart jokes in the movie there's no doubt about it various bowel movements are considered funny in the film and uh, therefore i don't know if that's going to be personally your cup of tea or not but one of the things it does point out is and that's the name of the film a million ways to die in the west about how many different ways you can die in the west and this is what i mean so sometimes when he's talking about it and it's done casually he's quite funny but there are other times when he just sounds whiny and i mean seth MacFarlane, i guess you know his background is animator and producer it's not necessarily actor and i mean he's done voice acting but to actually hang a whole movie onto your shoulders you do have to have just that it factor that level of charisma there are lots of people who are great when they are the B actor, you know, the supporting actor or actress, but when they're put into the limelight, they just don't quite have it, whatever it may be. And I would say that this would indicate that about Seth. He does an okay job, and obviously you're rooting for him because he's constantly a complete failure in this film. But at the same time, there are just times when you're like, you're ridiculously snarky, you've gone a bit too far with it, and you, you don't know when to, to judge that but he makes valid comments it's like you know you can die from a serious injury you can also die from a minor injury because this is before the era of antibiotics you can die from rattlesnakes and basically everything that isn't you will try and kill you in the wild west and also he points out that you know even if you go to the doctor the doctor will try and kill you and that's also true but to be honest by the 1880s that was dying out a bit but there was this period particularly in the late 1700s into the early 1800s of this thing called heroic medicine where the idea was to basically stress out the body so much that it will get its act together and fight back again so for example the last few days of george washington he had retired from being president but he's obviously considered the founding father of the nation he was ailing and basically the doctors went to see him and in essence in modern terms tortured him for several days they poured a mild form of acid onto his skin to sort of like give him welts to try and sort of shock the body out of its malaise which obviously nowadays we a know doesn't work and b if this person is ill the last thing you want to be doing is putting the body under pressure or stress in any way absolutely horrible so again seth's kind of got a point on that one if you like that that's where the humor comes from also the fact like say liam neeson is a very irish cowboy and neil patrick harris with his wonderfully luscious ludicrous mustache and so much more it's fun one of these gross out kind of comedy films and what i would say is and the ensemble cast everybody's game everybody's got a good line at some point seth just generally in any of his stuff is very sort of democratic in terms of handing out the laughs to people but it's not a perfect film not by any stretch of the imagination but also it's interesting that it's a gross out gag movie from 
2014 and those kind of gross out comedies you know it could be a super bad it could be 21 jump street there are loads of them it could be borat and yes i'm aware that there was a borat movie again in 2020 but really these kind of gross out comedy movies that used to be so so popular i guess sort of going all the way back to things like animal house in the late 70s you know, all the way through things like, you know, the sort of more bawdy ones like Porky's and, and, and so on and so forth. There are just so many of these sorts of movies where you'll laugh and also go at the same time. Dumb and Dumber, you know, probably one of the greatest ones ever. Well done to them all. But nowadays, everybody is so worried at a potentially offending anybody that all of these gross out comedies at some point, and indeed in this one, it's deliberately racist at a certain point because... A, that's kind of historically accurate, but B, they're trying to sort of like point out, you know, look at how far we've come, basically. But interestingly, on that sort of racist bit, they actually had to add a cameo right at the end of the movie to dampen it down because the test audiences didn't like it. But nowadays, just nobody would even take that risk because of the likes of angry on Twitter, outraged on Instagram, etc., this kind of, and I do hate this word, woke culture. I mean, look, if you're pointing out things like inequality and racism, sexism, things like that, that's absolutely valid. But there can be no doubt that some people just take this way too far. And it's like, the idea here is meant to laugh. You know, it's not trying to offend anybody. One person said it, some people on the internet are just trying to be professionally offended. You know, they will be offended by anything. And therefore, publishers and movie makers it's like i i don't want the controversy so it's better to be a coward and not even cover this topic than to bother doing it so the gross out comedy kind of has gone the way of the dodo or the silent movie indeed but well done this one the the last of a of an ignoble terrible line of comedies which genuinely make me laugh Anyway, moving on. If that's the overall gag about how everything in the frontier time is trying to kill you, and you know, there's, there, there are some great lines, it's like, you know, people are beginning to live past 35 now, so I think I've got more options. You know, these very modern phrases put in this movie which work and are there to design to be funny. Okay? That's the point of them. And it does lead on to one of my favourite elements of history. You do talk to people, and indeed, I'll give you sorry, I'm going to be a little bit political just for a minute, but hopefully you won't find it too edgy on this occasion. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The year is 2016 and you've got Donald J. Trump running for president and obviously he eventually wins the presidency. And one of the things, one of the chants that he got the crowds to do was, and indeed this was on his hats everywhere, was make America great again. And there was a satirist comedian who would go to some of these rallies and stick the microphone in people's faces and say, well, if he's trying to make America great again, when was the last time we were great? It's it's a good question. And it's a, it's a way of showing that, and I'm picking on Trump here, but there are so many politicians of any size, any size party, or indeed any flavor of party, be it sort of like left wing, right wing, centrist, whatever. It's very easy to give people like nostalgia goggles and say, do you remember when? Well, in that case, that's what I'm trying to get to myself. And so what this comedian was doing was saying to these people at these rallies, so when was the last time America was great? And I remember one person replying, you know, what about World War Two? We, you know, we won at World War Two, and we haven't looked back since. And the guy went, what about civil rights and segregation? Oh, okay, fair enough. And then another person goes, oh, that's easy. When we signed that Declaration of Independence in 1776, uh, you do know women couldn't vote and all black people in America were slaves. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, fine. So in other words, there's no such thing as the good old days. Everybody thinks there is. If you like, one of the classic non-political examples I can give you is so many people, both in the past and today, look back at the Roman era as some kind of peak of everything. And yet, slavery was everywhere. Violence was everywhere. The Republic, the, in theory, voting system, fell to a dictatorship, the emperors. So, not good. Not good at all. Genocides were carried out. And indeed, you know, women certainly didn't have the rights they do today. All kinds of problems with the Roman era. We literally got slaves to fight to the death for our amusement. Gladiators. But we tend to think gladiators are cool. For the record, so do the Romans. It shows you how complicated that subject is. But anyway, the point is this. There is no such thing as the good old days. But this idea of nostalgia is nowadays huge business. Indeed, one of the reasons why this podcast exists in this format is because basically I'm saying, hey, do you remember the thing? Yeah, do you remember that thing? And you get this nice little warm, fuzzy feeling. Oh, yeah, I remember the thing. Thanks, Jem, for the memories. And then I sort of lead you into some other stuff as well. Would something like Stranger Things have been as big a hit if it wasn't also set in the 1980s? If it was set contemporarily today, but ran exactly the same story, I'm going to say it will have done 
good business, but it didn't have that extra flavor. The sort of thing where, again, my I've mentioned this before, my wife is not cool with my kids watching sort of gory horror stuff, but because also they've got songs that she remembers, outfits that she used to wear in it, she was happy for these kids to sit down and watch these things, perhaps a little younger than than she would have allowed, certainly if it had been something like a John Wick movie, which would have been just as gory, but it's set today. It's like, well, I don't recognize those outfits. I don't recognize that that music. No, it's a no from me. So movies, TV shows, endlessly, you know, that 70s show, it, I mean, it's even referencing the fact that, hey, yeah, it's set in the past. There are so many things that sort of hop back to a simpler time, as people say. Or you could say that people were less aware of casual racism and sexism and the inequalities in the workplace and all this other stuff that I am pleased to say that we are seeing improvements on regularly in different places. Improvements aren't always constant. Sometimes we go backwards as well as forwards, but at least the conversations are happening now. And it's really interesting to me that nostalgia nowadays is very much seen as a positive thing and, like I say, is basically big business. You've got Captain Marvel, you know, a big hit for Disney a few years back. I think it was 2019 when it came out. And it was set for no particular reason in the 1990s, which allowed them to have a fight in a blockbusters and, you know, allowed them to play various songs as well. It, you know, it can be in a huge movie. It can be in a TV show, documentary, podcast. It is everywhere. It's almost a little bit insidious, quite frankly, with how much it's there. You're more likely to have a project greenlit if it's got a bit of nostalgia in it, because if you like, it's got a baked-in audience there. But what I absolutely want to remind you is just as A Million Ways to Die in the West shows you that the frontier era was not a great time in history, nor was your childhood. Now, obviously, everybody, usually, most people had a decent childhood. For those who didn't, I'm terribly sorry, and that's an awful story, and I'm sorry about that. But the point is, because you're a child, you are shielded from the harsh reality so we tend to think that that era was good whereas your parents were worried about inflation or war or political upheaval or whatever it may be and you weren't aware of that you were just having a good fun time on your sixth birthday party and now as a parent it's like god lord the world's kind of on fire at the moment and i have to be honest it kind of is but you know, my kids are at that sort of period where they're discovering cool movies and starting to go out on dates and things like that. And it's like they will look back on the early 2020s as a great time in their life, which demonstrably, provably was not for the whole of planet Earth. But now I want to go back further and talk about this concept of nostalgia. Nostalgia basically means painful rememberings or painful past if you're going to sort of like translate it from the greek and the idea was this that this sort of like remembering of the past could be traumatic and painful and for a long time in europe this particularly came to the fore at the sort of like the, the turn of the 1500s going into the 1600s that's when this first started being discussed by doctors but let's face it we're still at the time of of leeches and bleeding people to make them better. This is a bit before the heroic medicine, but the medicine at this time, in Europe at least, wasn't a whole lot better, it must be said. 
So the doctors really didn't know what they were talking about, but they were seeing people kind of affected. Now, nowadays, we might say that they might have PTSD. We might say that they have clinical depression and all these other elements that were just completely beyond the medicine and science of the time. What was interesting is for a large chunk of Europe, nostalgia, which was, like I say, a diagnosable disease like cholera, nostalgia was nicknamed the Swiss disease because it was seen that people from the country of Switzerland were particularly prone to nostalgia and could keel over at any moment. Also, the Royal Navy, this is the British Royal Navy, recognised that basically morale dipped when you went out to circumnavigate the globe. Now, you could call that homesickness, but that homesickness, again, is this pining for something in the past. Your family, your friends, your nation etc. And so the Royal Navy was very worried about this. What's interesting is that this continued into, but pretty much the last time it was considered a serious actual real illness, was the 1860s, the American Civil War, the US Civil War, where particularly on the Union side, they were so worried about the effects of nostalgia that various songs about basically home sweet home, were banned to be sung. They didn't want men, fighting men, generally very fit, to sort of collapse into nostalgia. Indeed, several dozen men, according to the Union's medical records, several dozen men during the US Civil War died of nostalgia. So be careful with things like Stranger Things. You're putting your life in your own hands. You didn't even realise that this was a thing. But continuing the idea of nostalgia in the world of A Million Ways to Die in the West, you get things like, oh, you know, the average life expectancy has risen to to 35. It's a good joke. It is not meant to be an in-depth look at the demographic mix of frontier era or earlier or anything like that. But it is an example where people generally misunderstand what it was like to live, let's say, 2000 years ago. Because you get people saying, well, the average life expectancy was round about the age of 40. And they're right. But you then have to remember what an average is. Because what's happening in all eras up until the 20th century is there is a massive amount of infant mortality. I am sorry to say that. Certainly not a pleasant subject. But to give you an idea, my Turkish grandfather, he was one of eight children... And he was the only one to make it to adulthood. That is seven tiny little graves that my great-grandparents would have had to have dug for these people. And that's not unusual. That is why still in the developing world today, there's this huge push to have lots of children. Because some of them are going to probably die. But as modern medicine and modern nutrients improve, then these people are more likely to live. And actually now in the West, in developed world, we tend to consider children as colossally expensive. They are. In Britain, it is estimated that to raise a child from 0 to 18, when in theory, to raise that child, it's going to cost you the same as a Lamborghini. So I've got two Lamborghinis, neither of which are generating any revenue themselves yet, who basically find me colossally boring and embarrassing. So that was worth the money. Seriously, I absolutely love them to bits. But if you're a parent, you know where I'm coming from with this. So the point here is that how we treat children has changed colossally over the last two, three hundred years. And of course, sadly, and again, another sad fact about this is the women who are giving birth to these children are sometimes dying. A hundred years ago, 
it's estimated that on average it was about 10 percent you know if you go across all times all eras all all nations before the era of modern medicine it was about 10 percent in terms of childbirth deaths so these are obviously young women as well. They might be sort of 18, 20, you know, if we're, particularly if we're talk, talking about 2,000 years ago. wouldn't be weird for an 18-year-old to be having their first child, and indeed some of those poor girls died. The thing about that is if you have children who are basically at zero dying, and you have young women at age 18, 20 dying, and that's put into the averages, that's pulling the number down. The basic reality was this. If you could get past your childhood... If you could get to sort of 13, 14, and you weren't a woman who died in childbirth, you were probably likely to live to about 60 years old. So actually, you know, the adults wandering around, they would have seen sort of grey-haired or silver-haired individuals hobbling around with a stick or something like that. So that's, if you like, a a misreading of what it is, because while it's technically true, it isn't a fair representation of society. So that's one thing that's a bit of a sort of a misnomer, if you like, from the past. But it is a really salient reminder that one of the biggest inventions, we talk about things like the internet, which is an amazing and important invention. And then we talk about fire, which is absolutely an important invention. But one of the other big changes which came in really in World War II onwards was antibiotics. Because If you had a cut, just a simple cut on your, let's say, on your arm when you were doing farm work and the year is, let's say, 1500, get a simple cut on your arm while you're doing some farming and that gets infected, there is nothing on planet Earth that can stop that infection from spreading. So maybe we amputate your arm to stop the spread of it or maybe you just tough it through, fine, or maybe you die of gangrene. Washing it in a stream, which might absolutely have more bacteria from all the livestock in the area, or the excrement that might be fed into that waterway. So we just the whole place was teeming with germs. Now, today, they still are teeming with germs, but doing something like surgery today, you hear about these sort of Victorian surgeons going so fast and so brutally. It's because they knew the longer they did it, the more likely that the patient was going to die. So it was about doing it fast. So they didn't die of shock, for starters. Then maybe they didn't die of infection. But there was no guarantee about that. They didn't understand microbiology until the late 1800s. There was literally Victorian surgeons walking around with their aprons encrusted with gore to basically show, look, look what a professional and pro I am. Now, of course, now we know that that's just a vector for infection. You would never do that. And all doctors and surgeons, when they're working with patients, will wash their hands and wear new scrubs and things like that. This is all incredibly important stuff that just we didn't know about 200 years ago. So this is the stuff that I love the fact that A Million Ways to Die in the West sort of pokes fun at and shows you that you know, working, just, you know, just generally working. Nowadays, so many people work in the office and it has such a safe environment. You know, just being a farmer, you know, farming equipment can crush you or cut you. You could be gored by a bull or something like that. There is the joke that, you know, people die at the fair. And like, yes, sometimes people did die at the fair. Also, People used to go to the fair, big day out, you know, a bit of trading, a bit of fun, all that kind of stuff, and watch a good public execution as well. Children would be taken to public executions. So showing that as much as you may decry the internet and things like Netflix, 
It's a lot better in terms of a morally, at least, entertainment than that as a form of entertainment. Again, this is not unique to the West or even America. Public executions were fabulously popular all around the world. Some of them even had religious aspects to them as well. How weird are we as human beings, I ask you. So... The last thing I'm going to leave you is a little bit about the history of the moustache. I could do a whole thing about hair and beards and things like that, but I'm pretty sure I've already done that one in the English episode. Want to know more? So the thing about moustaches is they're actually not wrong. A moustache, the bigger the moustache, the more people did tend to pamper it and things like that. And so if you ever look at a silent movie, just the fact that somebody is well-dressed with a big, bushy, luscious moustache to anybody of that time, let's say the year is 1910, anybody watching that would instantly know that is a rich person. They have the time to luxuriate over their facial hair. It's a statement as much as wearing a gold ring or something like that. And therefore, and this is going to be something that's going to probably surprise you a little bit, so the classic Hitler moustache, which at the time was referred to more as a postage stamp moustache, because it kind of looked like you had a stamp underneath your nose, that was the working man's moustache. It was very small, and it was kind of short as well, so it didn't need a lot of care. In other words, you're saying, hey, I'm a man, I can grow facial hair, but I'm a working man, and therefore I don't have time for all the lotions and potions and things like that to mix in massage into my lip scalp or or whatever and so if you look at something like laurel and hardy oliver hardy is wearing what we would today call a hitler mustache and obviously charlie chaplin was famous for it but again just to the audience the moment they see that facial feature they go ah they're a working class man they're they're one of us they're going to have to work hard. And indeed, there is huge debate over Hitler's moustache. There is photos of him at the beginning of the war with a big, luscious moustache. He isn't a proud Austrian, after all, and that's kind of what they did in Austria. But then, by the end of the war, it's the Hitler moustache, in inverted commas. Some people said he had to trim it down because of a gas mask and things like that, but he kept it throughout his political career. And while we will never know for sure, I think it's a fairly good read to say that he kept it that way to basically say to the working class people, I'm one of you. I may not be a German, because of course he was Austrian, but I am a working class man, even though I tried to get into art college twice. And therefore, yeah, you can trust me. Obviously, you can't trust Hitler. So anyway, there there we go. So there, weirdly, there is a history of the moustache. There is the history of like understanding the demographics. And yeah, pretty much everything could kill you prior to antibiotics and today there are still things that we haven't worked out be it viruses or what have you so please everybody be safe out there and another episode coming soon 